Hello, and welcome back to All Rings Considered, a read through the Lord of the Rings. We are on episode 37 today. That is book four, chapter four, for those of you who are keeping up. We are on Of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit. Um, this chapter is kind of a, it's an interesting chapter. It's kind of a Sam chapter. We start off with Frodo and Sam and Gollum are heading south away from the Black Gate, uh, finding another way into Mordor. Uh, there's this interesting sort of food scene where Gollum is catching some rabbits for Sam, and Sam prepares the rabbit stew for Frodo and himself. Um, and Sam leaves the cooking fire uh, on, and they makes a signal that, uh, accidentally, that is found by uh, Faramir of Gondor um, and some uh, of his companions. And the Gondorians are... Uh, in the midst of planning an ambush on some of the southern uh, soldiers, um, some of the southern men who have come up to fight with Sauron. There is a fight. Sam sees an elephant. I'm just going to say elephant. Um, and that's the end of the chapter. Yeah, that's about it. It's, yeah, it's, uh, I, I guess it's an interesting chapter. To me, it comes, there's like two takeaways in this chapter. One is that Tolkien really loves to dig deep into his landscape vocabulary at times and you have that in a big way here right and second for me is this little moment at the end and it's very quick um when sam has a thought about a dead uh soldier specifically one of these dead southron men i don't know if that's how you say it or not but that's that's the word tolkien uses in this chapter that's a really powerful moment because up to this point in the chapter the Gondorians just say things like curse the Southrons, and they actually say that word curse a lot, curse these people. They're really, really upset about them. And of course, why wouldn't you be? Like, they are fighting with Sauron against them. I get that, but Sam is the only one who sees the humanity in them, at least to an extent. And it says here that when this Southern man dies in front of Sam, he has this like, very brief thought. It says that he was glad he could not see the dead face. He wondered what the man's name was and where he came from, and if he was really evil of heart, or what lies or threats had led him on the long march from his home, and if he would not really rather have stayed there in peace. Yeah, I think this that was the climax of this chapter. It was all yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah this was this was is pretty big, I think, in terms yeah. of uh quotes taken out of the lord of the rings for sure um, yeah i think it's yeah. really memorable everyone remembers this one it's it sums up some of the anti-war themes of the book uh which are there the, the book uh i think toward the end of the book i think this is going to really come out but the book as a whole is more anti-war than pro-war hmm. uh, and it's, it's going to sort of make the argument that the only necessary wars have to be just absolutely, absolutely, absolutely necessary. Otherwise, you should not do them because they are bad. They are, they lead to bad things. And this, to me, is an example of that. And um, I think it's a little it's a little interesting. And I think it only works in the context of Lord of the Rings that you could do this, specifically this context of Sauron being obviously evil. But it's interesting that, you know, Sam can only think of two options here for the man, that he either, that he either marches here for evil which would be sort of the base assumption. Mm -hmm. That's what the Gondorians have. Or 
what Sam's alternative is, which is that he would have rather stayed home at peace, but he's been lied to. Or threatened. Or threatened to come here, so that there's no way this guy could have come here on his own. So I do think Sam denies him some kind of agency. It's possible this man would have chosen to come here. But it is still a much more sophisticated and nuanced understanding of war than the Gondorians have. For all their like nobility and for all the good descriptions Tolkien lavishes on them, they can't see the full picture. They miss that it's not just curse these people, that they've been deceived and they have been tricked. And It's a recognition of the tragedy of it. Right, exactly, yeah. And I, I don't... Most Gondorians aren't going to see that. Um, Faramir will. He doesn't in this chapter yet because we just met him. He doesn't say much yet. We will see him in coming chapters and we'll get to see his character a bit more. He's going to recognize it, but most of them don't. Um, and again, just to circle back and close the loop on something I said, the uh, the reason Sam can only see those two choices because you have that obvious like Sauron is evil thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not necessarily saying it's Tolkien should have entertained that idea because it's really no way you could have fit that in given the context of the story. Um, but just it's it's worth pointing out um, that there is a uh, interesting dichotomy here that maybe if you're writing a different context story you would not you would have like this third option. But yeah, I like for this piece it was really big for me, and I think I think it's a really good example of uh, stories and especially good fiction not being uh, like I, I think a lot of people. Uh, kind of bring very simple questions to a book. Um, yeah. Like, what does this book mean? Like, is the book, is the book uh, pro this or is it pro that? Right. In a sense of like, it's cut and dry. Um, but books, like, they don't really do, that's not really how stories work. Um, books, yeah. one, don't take a position on every issue. Um, people read into stuff <laughs> like all the time. Like, uh, I'm not even going to come up with something, but people read into stuff. Um, and number two, like, uh, not every action that a protagonist takes is endorsed by the author or by the book. Right. And I think this is a really nice example where you have in the Lord of the Rings, um, something like the ride of the Rohirrim where they are, uh, involved in a glorious battle. Uh, it is noble to protect their, uh, their livelihood and their, their lives. (laughs) Where they, you know, it, it is a, 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 a triumphant, you know, uh, piece of, of war, right? And it's portrayed in a very powerful and positive light. And then you have this, right? Where it's... Right. Uh, yeah, there's this men killing each other. And it's, you know, potentially caused by, you know, Sauron, right? Who's benefiting from this, right? And it's tragic. And maybe it's necessary, you know, maybe, the, you know, those men are waging war against Gondor, right? But it's tragic. And you're, you're yeah. not... Pres- yeah, so it's... Uh, books are more complicated than that. <laughs> and this is... Which, this which is, is nice. such a hard thing to say, I think, in our... In the modern climate, where our dialogue has been shaped much more by media such as Twitter, the, the reality is most people today, I don't think, want books to be nuanced. Most people, or any kind of media... They want it to fall into this bucket of either completely right or completely wrong. And you're right. It doesn't work that way. And you're especially right that the authors don't always agree with maybe their protagonists or certain characters or certain characters could mean this and believe this and some believe that and that's okay and we have to embrace it. I don't know. I I see this a lot with – 
I mean, I was actually having a conversation, I remember, a few, I don't know, a couple months ago, I guess, with somebody. And hopefully this person doesn't listen to the podcast. Uh, I doubt that. But, <laughs> um, but I was having a conversation with somebody in, uh, about this book called Norwegian Wood by Haruki Murakami. And I said, I really liked it. I said, it was a really good book. And they thought I was just like, oh, that's messed up because that protagonist is a total, he's a total jerk. He's an asshole, all these things. I was like, yeah, okay. I don't like the guy in it. I mean, I'm not, right. right? <clears throat> you like the story um, that. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but you know, it was well-written to explore some interesting themes through this person's pretty warped perspective. And the, you know, they just couldn't wrap their minds around, right? Like, no, that guy was bad. You can't like this book. Like, this is a bad, this is an evil book essentially because that person is is messed up and we just had to we reached an impasse there and i just i just don't think that's necessarily a problem um there can be more being said there and yeah i feel like i'm running i'm getting really far afield from the lord of the rings at this point because there's no <laughs> direct analog to that in the lord of the rings but it's it's always worth like checking ourselves like is this modern attitude this very distinctly i think 21st century attitude of like absolute right or wrong period in the discussion there is no nuance or there is no like contradictions is that really healthy and is that really even accurate to anything does that actually reflect how this stuff works well i think we can tie it into here i'll, I'll help bring it back to lord of the rings um it's i think it's actually kind of fascinating that lord of the rings which actually has a like reputation uh of being uh black and white in terms of, of good and evil with you know something you know, there is a very clear good deity and evil deity present right. in this world, acting in it. But the story isn't that way. Correct. It's it's such an interesting move that Tolkien makes those like absolute good and absolute evil background things, because that's what so effectively I think allows him to then explore the shades of gray in between. Yeah, in like, a way that um, if you don't have those anchors, you know, you might feel too lost or too aimless or too, you know, but Tolkien can ground it. No, there is an absolute good we can all strive for. There's an absolute evil we can all avoid or want to avoid. But what where we fall as human beings is on a spectrum. Well, let's see. To, there were a couple of things I just wanted to mention in, earlier in the chapter. Less heavy stuff. So I mentioned it's kind of a Sam chapter. Uh, we get a lot of Sam's perspective. Yeah. One thing I think this was whole book is Sam's book, though, too. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right. I mean, book four in general is is Sam's book. But you're right. I'm sorry. I don't mean to say. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm um, trying to make a point here. Um, <laughs> one thing I think was kind of neat is that um, Sam starts speaking like Gollum. Um, he's adopting some yeah. of his language ticks, or yes. and this is natural in the way people speak, which I think is just really cool. So Sam starts calling the sun the yellow face, um, and he'll say, "Oh, precious." And he's doing right. it kind of like tongue in cheek, right? But um, like that's that's how language works. Like, and I think that's yeah, you know, that's kind of neat. Um, kind of like how you sound smart on this podcast because you're talking. About <laughs> no, absolutely though. It's such such a weird bit to me. And Sam is just getting nastier too in a lot of ways too. Yeah. So he's getting meaner to Gollum. He always was. It's interesting. He has that. Part of this plays right into what we were saying that people are nuanced and complicated. Sam's overall good character, and he's in many ways the true hero of these events. But he has a dark side to him. He's just nasty to Gollum in ways he doesn't necessarily have to be. Yeah, Gollum gets in the rabbit, and he threatens to cut him up into pieces if he uh, doesn't give him uh, uh, some bay leaf. Yeah, yeah. And I want to say um, I don't have anything 
to say about it, but the food part of this chapter I think is important. Um, it would be great for maybe one of our listeners to send in some analysis, maybe. Um, but food is super important in narrative. And there, I, I feel like this scene is is really there's something going on here um i just like i'm not exactly sure what it is i just wanted okay, yeah. to, i didn't want it I to go without it. mentioning yeah for sure yeah yeah if anyone has any thoughts on that send us an email because i didn't even consider it to be honest if you have a better podcast please just email us <laughs> just email us the better podcast please um but yeah that's about all i have for this chapter my favorite line is the one i said earlier yeah. Yeah, it's mine too. I think this is one of my favorite lines in the whole of the Lord of the Rings. Um, so it's a great one. Yeah. All right. Well, then let's uh, let's take some fan mail, some fan questions. We've gotten a lot here, so uh, a couple good ones. Well, first, I want to address one person asked if we can talk about the trailer for that new Tolkien movie, which we will. We're not going to do that this episode, but we will talk about that trailer. And yeah, so stay tuned for that. We'll get there. Um, what else? We have this one um, from Everett. And Everett asks, uh, why does Gandalf the White seem to be significantly more powerful than Gandalf the Grey? Did the Valor give him extra power during his reincarnation? Honestly, I would think that after death, he would be like Sauron, stuck in some weird form and or barred from using certain powers or engaging in certain activities. Is it just another one of the inaccurate themes presented in the Peter Jackson movies? Um, so I, I actually do not quite understand, Everett, and I apologize. I'm not quite sure I understand your question about the Peter Jackson movie part. Um, but the first half of this question I understand. Um, why is Gandalf the White stronger? And the answer, unfortunately, is not very satisfying. At least I don't think so. But he's only brought back because Eru Iluvatar, the ultimate supreme god of the universe, who very rarely intervenes in the universe... <laughs> does decide at this point that he will bring Gandalf back. And in so doing, he allows Gandalf to access more of his true power. I believe Tolkien comments too that this is because he's the only one of the uh, Istari, the only one of the wizards who actually accomplished their mission. They were all supposed to go there to guide men and how to resist Sauron, and Gandalf's the only one who did that uh, successfully. Not that all of them turned evil like Saruman, but uh, Saruman turns evil, Radagast gets distracted. Too distracted by nature, and Two of them get lost, and we don't know what happened to them. So Gandalf's the only one who pulled it off. So Eru gets to say, okay, come back. You're going to have more access to your power. That's why he's more powerful. So I feel like this is kind of an unsatisfying answer, because my answer is literally, God did it. But <laughs> that is the answer. And yeah, so it's not quite like Sauron, who was actually defeated, but not fully defeated. So he is working within his own limitations that have been caused by his defeat. This is, this is uh, something different than that. Yeah, and I'll just like elaborate just a little bit. Um, he in the question it seems it asks uh, why does he seem more powerful, and it's because he is. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good point. He, yeah. he is. Yeah, outright effectively, it, yeah. he is Saruman now, right? Yeah, and as he says in the book, I'm Saruman as he should have been. Right. Um, uh, which actually, like, I think the Peter Jackson. I know we we talk about some differences uh, on the podcast, but. We are big fans. That that should be known. Oh, we yeah. are huge fans of uh, Peter Great Jackson's uh, take on the Lord of the Rings. Um, it'd be very difficult for someone to do what what Peter Jackson did. So how dare you, Everett? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So let's see, I, I've got a, a question here. Pip mentioned in a line where the narrator describes Gandalf and his advice being lost too soon, too soon, as a moment where instead of being omniscient, it dipped into Frodo's thoughts. Uh, he go, uh, the question goes on. Uh, if I remember correctly, the pretense of this book is that either Frodo or Sam wrote it after the events finish. Do you think we're supposed to understand the narrator as being one of their voices? And if so, are there moments where the person of the narrator is identifiable? That's a really interesting yeah. theory. And um, so actually, I love this question. Yeah, this it's a great, great, this is a great question. Point, yeah. um, I'm going to say no to the first one, but with a caveat. Um, so the first question is... Wait, no to which part? Right. Uh, the first question is, um, are, are we supposed to understand the narrator as being one of their voices? So being written by the Hobbit. Mm, right, yeah. Um, and so I don't think so. And I think... I, I was flipping through um, and in the two towers, and I found some other uh, examples of this sort of phenomenon where you dip into a character's perception um, into the description uh, that were not, it was not Frodo. Uh, so you get Aragorn uh, in book one, which is uh, the departure of Boromir, or I'm sorry, chapter one, departure of Boromir. And Aragorn, there's a description when he's uh, running to uh, find Boromir, and it says, a mile, maybe, from Parthgalen, a little glade not far from the lake he found Boromir. And it's really subtle, like, but it's him running, and it's a mile, comma, maybe, comma, uh, which is yeah. his own estimation of himself running. This phenomenon is actually, it's most conspicuous when there's ambiguity or um, uncertainty, uh, when a character is uncertain about something. Um, Boromir actually uh, has this in the same chapter, at last, slow words came. I tried to take the ring from Frodo, he said. I am sorry. I have paid. His glance strayed to his fallen enemies. Twenty at least lay there. And so that's him estimating the number of enemies on the ground. Um, more like explicitly, because those are fairly subtle. There's Pippin in the chapter, the Urukai, and it's just everywhere. There's so many questions uh, where it's um, uh, hundreds of hideous arms grasped at him from every side. Where was Mary? And and this happens throughout the chapter. So no, I don't think uh, that it's supposed to be specifically uh, the author of the Red Book. Okay. And the second question, I don't know. Um, actually, I thought about it, and but I do think, given that my answer to the first question is no, I would doubt that there are any moments where the... Uh, actual person of the narrator is evidence in the text. But it's yeah, a really good question. Let's definitely keep our eyes on it, but it, it's a really good question because I love being reminded that there is that pretense that this is, and that conceit that this is actually written by Frodo um, right. and translated by Tolkien into English. So Tolkien has that, he's a, it's that pretend conceit of his that actually I didn't write this, I'm just translating it. I will say, I think what would be a cool follow-up is to see how because I, it seems to me that it happens more in the case of hobbits than other characters um and not just because mm. we get more chapters from their perspective that would be good somebody would write, write a paper on this if they haven't already please um, email us your papers uh <laughs> without your name on it so we can just uh slap ours yeah. on and get those published um but uh um yeah well, I so think i think that's, that's about all we got for this chapter next time we have book four chapter five the window on the west and yeah send us more questions hopefully next time we'll let's talk about the trailer next time okay which means yeah we gotta 
think about it and make some notes. It's a very short trailer. Just for context, they released this one-minute trailer. It's like a teaser for a, a biopic about Tolkien. It's coming in May. I think May. Yeah, so um, we just got to think about it and get our thoughts down in more organized fashion. All right, but yeah, we'll see you then.